Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Are you looking for a new podcast to add to your favorites list? Once Upon a Crime is a weekly scripted true crime podcast that tells the story behind the story of real life crime. I'm Esther, host of Once Upon a Crime. Each week, I bring you a new true crime story, meticulously researching each case to bring you details you won't hear anywhere else. Together, we'll seek to understand the why behind infamous crimes, as well as lesser-known cases. Told in a storytelling style, I dig into a different true crime topic each month. Killer kids, deadly duos, mass murders, tragic deaths of music superstars are just some of the series covered on Once Upon a Crime. With over 200 episodes to date and new episodes released every Monday, you'll want to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Look for Once Upon a Crime and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Bienvenidos, bitches, and booty binafi. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a poop pod. It's a poop cast. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a podcast about true crimes coming about people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied white dudes. What? No, no, I'm telling you, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about because the media and entertainment commonly leave them out. And that is because the news is racist. <laughs> Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602 And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. Check the footnotes for each episode, which is on our website, and you can check out the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support our show by supporting our sponsors. So, wow, that was a mouthful. (laughs) Who are we talking about today, Beth? 
Well, today we're talking about Apollo Keith Ortega, a Tucson man who raped three women and killed two of them. He then told authorities that he did it because Satan told him to. Mm. Oh, <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> and this case was suggested to us by Brandy Nicole. Well, thank you, Brandy, very yeah. much for the suggest. This case was a doozy. It was interesting. Yes, it was. Uh, And right in our backyard. Yeah. Uh, But before we get into it, how you doing? Well, I'm I'm hanging in there, you know. All right. All right. (laughs) I'm going through it, but uh, I'll get out the other side eventually. I know you will. And uh, just uh, I was telling you off mic, but to to you and everybody who might be going through it, it's okay to not be okay, everybody. I appreciate Um, that. You don't have to be grinding all the time. I don't have to pretend I'm okay. Yeah. No, you don't. My mom used to say to us, like when we'd ask her for stuff, uh, she'd say, I don't have to do anything but stay black and die. And you, my friend, you don't have to stay black, but you don't have to do anything. Okay, but just cool. be. And that's it. And we love I you I appreciate it. it. Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, I mean, I'm feeling really good. I'm like fan fucking tastic. I'm counting down the days to Crime Con. Oh, yeah. It's like going to be 37, 38. Yeah. I'm um, so excited for that. That's true. Yeah. Um, what else? We got uh, overqualified black women on our way to the supreme court yeah um and then i started taking these new um supplements and it's ashwagandha and kava and i i feel like that might be contributing to my fan fucking tasticery awesome. mood because boy oh boy like i don't know what it is it's like sunshine and rainbows <laughs> everywhere and i'm not even doing any drugs <laughs> we used to have a sponsor and uh it was supplements and one yeah. of the supplements was ashwagandha and i i feel like it was really helpful but then i stopped taking it and i can't find a an ashwagandha that's as good as theirs was so really yeah. oh well i okay so i don't know where this comes from i mean old whitey does he's really into like supplements, supplements and, and herbs like bye-byes from Italy and all kinds of yeah. shit. I don't know. But I I it's in my medicine cabinet and I just it it's it's working and wherever I went to a seminar once on um like uh supplements and stuff for mood and um Oh wow. Those were talked about quite frequently for in the wellness space. And uh, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I just know <laughs> that Wendy. I, I like it. Yeah, uh, sweet. Well, so that's that's um, how I'm doing. But enough of that. Let's get into some <laughs> listener letters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's in that bag, Beth? Well, we got a voicemail. Okay, I'm going to play it. Here we go. Okay. Hi, Wendy and Beth. So I'm listening to your latest podcast, and I think... That, that that Ken Kenby girl, what's the name? Yeah, Ken. Yeah, anyway, Kenby. the one that's like smearing poop everywhere and mm-hmm. yep, yeah. running around naked. Um, those are like classic signs of sexual abuse. I feel like oh wow, she might also be a victim in a different way. Anyway, just always trying to stick up for the underdog like you guys. Love you, love your podcast so much. Bye. Oh my God, love you too. Wow. And yeah. Woo. 
thanks for yeah. that information. I that is not something that I never I occurred knew. to me. I had no um, idea. And that's yeah. I mean, golly, look at our community yeah. helping us like learn and be better and figure that stuff out. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I had no idea. She did a lot of fucked up shit, but you know, we always say hurt people yeah. hurt other people. That's why you know this I find this stuff so fascinating. So right. thank you for yeah. that tidbit. Yeah, I wish you would have left your name, boo, yeah, but that's but okay. We love that's you all anyway. Right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you, Anonymous. Thank <laughs> you, Anonymous. Now we also got some new patrons, Sarah F and Connie S. Uh, and I believe I feel like Connie's been a Patreon in the past, so I'm calling her a returning champ. But here are your tunes, everybody. <clears throat> I'm every Sarah, it's all in me. Thank you for the Patreon, baby. You do it gracefully. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, and this, Connie, this is for you. It feels so good to be alive. Got all my fruities by my side. Couldn't stop podcasting if we tried. That's true. <laughs> That's why we lift our head with pride. I got a million. Thanks, Connie. Thanks for supporting our little show. <laughs> and, uh, uh-oh. Oops. Oh, wrong button. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you got, you got <laughs> applause and a hip-hop air horn. Thank you, Connie. Yeah. Thank you, Connie. Sorry, I moved. I moved. I added the voicemail, moved all the buttons out of, around. So my bad, pressing all the wrong buttons. My bad, but boy, are we happy for our supporters? Yeah, supporting us. Thank you all so much. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. So we're gonna take a quick little break and get to the story when we come back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do that in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. 
All right, Takez, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time to fess up. <laughs> it's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. We're back. Yeah. Beth just slapped the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, she did it. <laughs> All the way from Arizona. <laughs> she slapped me through the internet. Oh, no. Um, well, Beth, remind us, who is our subject again today? Today, we're talking about Apollo Keith Ortega, an indigenous man who attacked three women within a 19-day time frame, killing two because he claimed Satan told him to. All right. So let's get into some stats. Let me make sure I hit the right button this time. <laughs> <laughs> So Apollo Keith Ortega had um, two murder victims. They were Margie Ortiz. She was a 58-year-old woman experiencing homelessness in the Tucson area. His other murder victim was Norma Dean Connor, um, a woman also experiencing homelessness in the Tucson area. And then there was a third woman who was raped, um, but she survived the attack. She's a 37-year-old woman whose name has never been disclosed. Ortega's MO was to beat, sexually assault, stab, and bludgeon over the head. Ooh, there was one. I didn't see the crime scene photos, but I heard the description. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. When he went in. Yeah. Uh, and Margie and Norma's lives were taken. Taken in the summer of 2008 in Tucson, Arizona. So now we're going to get further into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Our setting is Tucson, Arizona, which is located in southern Arizona, about 115 miles southeast of Phoenix. It averages 350 sunny days a year. And in the summer, the average daily high is above 94 degrees Fahrenheit. The hottest month of the year in Tucson is July, with an average high of 100 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Winter temperatures reach average highs of 64 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit, and we all live for the winter <laughs> in this part of the woods. <laughs> Speak for yourselves. <laughs> Tucson's nickname is the Old Pueblo. Yeah, it's like a big little town. A pueblo is like a little town. Right. Um, and uh, Tucson is a big little town. It's yeah. a college town. So Tucson is situated in a valley in the Sonoran Desert, surrounded by five mountain ranges. The city is bordered on all sides by protected natural areas, Coronado National Forest, Catalina State Park, 
Ironwood Forest National Monument, and Saguaro National Park East and West. If you drive the Catalina Highway, you'll go from the lower elevations of the valley floor to the summit of Mount Lemon at about 9,000 feet. And in about an hour's drive, you will traverse seven of the world's nine life zones, the span of ecosystems you'd see driving from Mexico to Canada. Nice. Very cool. Uh, Humans have been in this area for over 12,000 years, and Tucson is one of the oldest continually inhabited areas in North America. The native Hohokam lived and farmed here for 4,000 years, minding their own damn business, before (laughs) Spanish missionaries and soldiers arrived in the late 1600s. Um, The Pasqua Yaqui tribe and Tohono O'odham nation are also native to this area. During a 1698 visit to the area, Jesuit missionary Father Francisco Eusebio Quino found a small O'odham village surrounded by irrigated fields on the west side of the Santa Cruz River. This place was called Chuxon by the native people who lived there. The Spanish pronounced it Tucson and went on to establish a mission there called San Augustine. You know, you have two ears for listening and one mouth for speaking, and they got it completely wrong. Chuxon is not Tucson. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Two ears, one mouth. Come on. Come on, get it together, colonizers. So Tucson was founded on August 20th, 1776, an event celebrated annually in Tucson as La Fiesta de San Agustin. On that date in 1776, Tucson was made a presidio or fort of the Spanish army. The small Spanish presidio housed approximately two to three officers and 75 soldiers and their families. The old pueblo has lived under four flags, Spanish, Mexican, Confederate, and U.S., (laughs) Tucson was initially composed of one-story, one-room adobe houses with dirt floors. Few of the buildings were finished in plaster, and the city had unpaved, unlit streets, no electricity, no sidewalks, and no public works. At the time, the Santa Cruz River was the primary source of water, and irrigated fields were filled with squash, grain, beans, peas, chilies, pumpkins, watermelons, pears, and pomegranates. Yummy. Yeah. And 1846, during the Mexican-American War, the Mormon Battalion, the only religious unit in the United States military history and federal service, captured the town, but did not remain and occupy it. And it wasn't until 1856 that the Mexican soldiers withdrew. The first Americans to enter the area was in 1854, when all of Arizona south of the Gila River was legally bought from Mexico as part of the Gadsden Purchase, and Tucson officially became a part of the United States of America. These large acquisitions of land are always so funny to me when I read them in these in the script and in, in, in my memory from yeah, history books. Right. Like imagine somebody was like, I'm gonna sell your house. Like you don't get any say. It's gonna just, yeah, it's belong, just gonna to belong to another country somebody right else. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so during the Civil War, Union troops left Tucson to fight in the South, and the residents of the region were left with no military support. And on February 28th, 1862, a Confederate force of approximately 120 cavalrymen arrived at Tucson from Texas as part of an effort to expand the border of the Confederacy westward. They proclaimed Tucson the capital of the Western District of the Confederate Arizona Territory, which comprised what is now Southern Arizona and Southern New Mexico. But additional military support from the South never arrived. On May 14th, Union troops marched towards Tucson from Fort Breckenridge to the Northeast. 
Confederate troops abandoned Tucson and it was recaptured by Union troops without firing a shot. The Confederate occupation had lasted only 80 days. More proof that the Confederacy are losers. Anyway, Arizona (laughs) officially became a United States territory in 1863 and Tucson continued to be the military headquarters of the territory. But it was another decade before a significant Anglo population existed in Tucson and American women didn't arrive in the region until 1872. Um, by the way, the lack of, wh- of white women um, just uh, alarm bells, rape, 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 sexual assault of, of um, the indigenous women who and, and Mexican women who might have been there. That's that's what I see when I read that. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm laughing. I'm it's not it's not I, I, funny. It's, but I, I mean, yeah, I mean, but you got to read between the lines. That's, right. That's that's a significant. Yeah. Fact. Yeah. And why white women weren't coming out there was also for that reason. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Listen, I, I've seen it before. I've seen it again. Dudes running things. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. not always not, great. Not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. During <laughs> what is commonly referred to as the Old West era, Tucson was the battleground of many clashes between cattle ranchers, settlers, miners, and the Apache. Tombstone, located about 70 miles southeast of Tucson, is the site of the famous gunfight at the OK Corral. In 1877, Tucson was incorporated as a city, making it the oldest city in Arizona. The Pima County Board of Supervisors ordered a map made of the town and required the town to rename Spanish-language streets to honor prominent citizens killed by Native Americans. What? (laughs) Get that shit out of here. So the town also enacted a homestead plan. This is not sounding. I know where this goes. I hate that word homestead. Village (laughs) lots were distributed for free. If the homesteader spent $100 to approve the lot and if they lived on the property for at least six months. So all we have to do is kick out somebody who already lives there, most likely indigenous or brown person. uh, And if we can just keep them away for six months, this land is mine. This land is my land. It's not your your land. land. I'm pushing you up. And you ain't got one. That's how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The American way. (laughs) Yeah. So that was a way they settled the West was that they gave away free property to white people. Um, and so to, to populate it, to, you know, move, move the, uh, indigenous people off the land. Yeah. yeah yeah it's horrific it's horrific yeah. it's it's uh yeah <laughs> and, and there we go <laughs> and there we go yeah with the arrival of the southern pacific railroad in 1880 the discovery of silver at tombstone copper at bisbee and irrigation developments the population began to grow the city grew further after 1885 when it secured the university of arizona the first university in the territory the wow. Southern Pacific Railroad also made it possible to bring in droves of health seekers. During the early to mid-19th century, tuberculosis was the leading cause of death in the United States. At the time, little was known about the disease, including the fact that it was contagious. Medical practitioners attributed the disease to heredity, climate, diet, lifestyle, and ventilation. The American Southwest capitalized on the reported curative powers of dry, fresh air and sunlight, as well as traditional indigenous healing practices to entice health seekers to relocate to the desert. Health tourism advertisements began to appear in newspapers and in magazines such as the Ladies Home Journal and the Journal of the 
American Medical Association. The greatest area for sanitariums in Arizona was in Tucson, which had over a dozen. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, hospitals, sanatoria, (laughs) I like that plural, sanatoria, health resorts, and other structures dedicated to medical treatment multiplied throughout the city of Tucson. The Desert Sanatorium opened as a for-profit tuberculosis treatment center and health retreat in 1924. The main treatment method was heliotherapy, or therapy with sunlight. Telescopic devices called radiometers were housed on the roof of the main building, channeling and directing sunlight through small lenses into the treatment rooms and sun baths below. That sounds nuts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me think of ants, like uh, boys using... uh, Oh, to burn the ants. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In addition, the sanatorium's other buildings were scattered across the site for increased sun exposure and ventilation in the patios, courtyards, and gardens. The Desert Sanitarium was designed in the Pueblo Revival style, inspired by a mixture of Spanish, colonial, and Native American Pueblo architectural forms. The Pueblo Revival style is one of the few architectural styles that was consciously developed to attract tourists. The roof of the Pueblo Revival structure is usually flat and hidden behind a low parapet wall. The exterior is stucco, meant to imitate the adobe walls of a Pueblo, and there are projecting roof rafters called vigas. These are generally round or square and protrude from the wall near the roof line, but are actually purely decorative in nature. The popularity of this style is why there are so many stucco homes in the Southwest. You'll also find lots of stucco homes in Nevada, California, and New Mexico. Yeah, they all look the same. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the sanatoriums in Tucson quickly became a refuge only the rich could afford, whereas the poor, seduced by the same advertisements, had to go to the outer edges of Tucson and live in temporary tent cities. The tents were often inhabited by patients and their families with only a small number of volunteers providing care. This arrangement was actually conducive to spreading disease. Imagine if healthcare was available to everybody. Yeah, oh my just God. imagine that. Oh my God. <laughs> and few measures were taken to care for the people with TB in local indigenous communities. The Desert Sanatorium actually provided tours for patients to visit indigenous communities as part of its leisure activities. So they were spreading wow. TB everywhere. Wow. Okay. And by the early 20th century, indigenous communities, along with other impoverished groups in Arizona, had the highest rate of tuberculosis in the region. Um, wow. Um, and um, as far as the homestead acts that took place to expand the West, a big part of the success of the spread of white supremacy in the Southwest and the genocide, essentially, of indigenous communities, part of that was the disease Spreading that disease. was spread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Desert Sanatorium closed in 1943 and was gifted to the community. And after a successful community fund drive to convert the sanatorium into a community hospital, it reopened as Tucson Medical Center in 1944. Yeah, and it's still there. Still there. Yeah. On September 4th, 1886, Apache leader Geronimo surrendered to the U.S. government. For 30 years, the Native American warrior had battled to protect his tribe's homeland. 
land. However, by 1886, the Apaches were exhausted and outnumbered. Geronimo was the last Native American warrior to formally give in to U.S. forces, and it signaled the end of the Indian Wars in the Southwest. Um, And this furthered Tucson's growth because they were no longer a threat. Yeah, but um, uh, silver lining, the indigenous community in Tucson is, I think, from uh, an outsider looking in, is coming back. And there are a lot of activists um, present um, in the area. And so I don't want to. to, Yeah, yeah, their light wasn't completely stomped out. Um, So according to John Southard, uh, an Arizona historian, there was discussion as early as 1850 about Arizona gaining statehood, but there were concerns about the desolate nature of the territory and questions about whether or not it was even viable as a state. <laughs> South- <laughs> That's so funny. I know. Southard said at the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. House of Representatives mainly consisted of members from eastern and midwestern states, so they set out on a fact-finding mission. <laughs> per Southard, quote, There are stories of them not even wanting to step off the train. Instead, just went in ahead directly to Southern California because they looked out, they saw desolation. They saw what they perceived to be nothing of value, unquote. Ouch, that hurts. (laughs) I must must say that I find the desert to be stunning. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, So, and if you haven't seen it, Go to Google. You should see Check it. it out. Yeah. yeah, it's it's beautiful. So a new proposal was introduced to make New Mexico and Arizona one state. New Mexico was all for it, but Arizona was not. Southern explained, quote, there was a great hesitation because they didn't want to associate with the Hispanic culture of and people of New Mexico. Tisk tisk. There was fear that this would be a very negative development for the people of Arizona, unquote. Arizona was a territory for 49 years before before it became a state. But on February 14, 1912, Arizona achieved statehood, the last of the 48 contiguous United States to be admitted to the Union. Woo! Success! <laughs> Tucson reached its peak as the health capital during the 1930s, when the city's roughly 30,000 residents were joined by about 10,000 health tourists visiting its 21 sanatoria, four hospitals, and four luxury hotels during the peak season. Among the more notable events in the early 20th century in Tucson was the arrest of John Dillinger and several other members of the Dillinger gang. At the time, all five of these individuals were ranked in the top six of the FBI's public enemy list. Dillinger was transferred to the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, from which he escaped a month later. With World War II, the city experienced another growth spurt. Around 1900, just over 7,500 people lived in Tucson. But by 1940, the population had grown to nearly 40,000 residents. Wow. Yeah, big jump. Mm -hmm. The deployment of thousands of troops to the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and several additional bases around Tucson helped boost the population. Throughout World War II, several Mexican-American community organizations throughout Tucson were active in supporting the American troops who were fighting abroad. The aid that they provided was given materially and through moral support. After World War II, when air conditioning became available for residential use and partly due to the annexation of suburbs, the city experienced a population boom. Tucson's dry, sunny climate and the unique desert locale made it a popular tourist attraction, health resort, and retirement community. 
The city's post-war industries have centered on aircraft and missile manufacturing and electronics research and manufacture. During the mid-century, local Native Americans felt that there was a need for an organization of their own to provide services for health, housing, education, counseling, and recreation. To pursue this goal, a Native American club was organized in 1957. In 1963, the club became incorporated as the American Indian Association, doing business as the Tucson Indian Center. For decades, the center has offered youth and elderly programs, job services, adult and youth education programs, cultural activities, and emergency assistance. With a 2020 population of about 560,000 people, it is the second largest city in Arizona after Phoenix and the 33rd largest city in the United States. Tucson also has a seasonal population as migratory retirees spend their winters in the city. And I should, I would also like to point out that um, America's people who experience homelessness, all, uh, there also is an element of migration yeah. um, due to climate right. um, for those people as well. So I'm almost certain those numbers are not included in the ones yeah. that we found in the stats officially, yeah. but yeah. it's important to be said. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the population of Tucson is 44% Latinx, 43% non-Hispanic white, 5% Black, 3% Native American, 3% Asian, and 9% two or more races. So now we're going to get into Apollo Keith Ortega's early life. Hit it, Beth! So we don't know a whole lot about his early life, including his ethnicity. Although he was described by a witness as Native American, and I think you you said he was identified in uh, 48 hours. Uh, the first 48. The first 48 as Native American. He yeah, could, by the police. He could also be Latinx. Mm-hmm. In any case, according to Apollo Ortega, he started drinking at the age of nine, and he eventually became a daily drinker. He said he also used marijuana, cocaine, meth, and heroin. So I just wanted, this is a, that's an alarming age to be hitting, hitting those yeah. hard ass substances. Yeah. Um, so welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Uh, and this particular subject is about BIPOC and generational trauma. And although we don't know much about Ortega's early life, his behavior might be an indication of the ongoing effects of historical trauma that affects Native Americans um, and Latinx and Black people. This trauma affects the way BIPOC folks engage in child rearing. It affects family structures and relationships. Signs of trauma can also include poor signs of physical health, engaging in self-destructive behaviors, and suicide. Uh, Further, the challenges that Indigenous communities and Latinx BIPOC communities face um, to those on the outside who are lucky enough to not experience oppression might look at them and say, Oh, you know, blame the poor, oppressed, marginalized, or other groups and blame them for their circumstances. But um, the study of epigenetics and psychology show more and more clearly how traumatic experiences shape the lives of not only the people who experience them, but also their children and their children's children. Yeah. And science supports this. This isn't just me blowing smoke up of right, right. your audio asses. <laughs> A study... <laughs> A study done on mice where mice were exposed to the smell of, I think it's acetophenonine. Acetophenonine. So they were exposed to the smell of something, something, something <laughs> sciencey. And when they some kind were, of chemical, were, were some chemical. And when they were exposed to the smell, they were hit with electrical shock. Um, and they found that subsequent generations of these mice who were never, never electrically shocked, never experienced the electrical shock, have the same reactions to the scent as if they had been. That's so, crazy. 
that um, there's that on that. If you don't believe me, <laughs> yeah, and and we'll put this uh, information in our show notes if you want to look yeah. at it. And in any case, it sounds like he came from a broken home because he said he was abused by a stepfather. He also said that he was hyperactive and had behavioral issues, so was often suspended from school. And he quit school in the ninth grade. His longest term of employment was two months. He lived with a variety of friends and reportedly had never been in a long-term relationship. According to a pre-sentence report, quote, his drug and alcohol use caused him to black out, stagger, pass out, attempt suicide and become confused, unquote. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, Glitches in the Matrix, Cult Leaders, Missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. 
There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So now it's timeline time. What the what, Beth? On July 10th, 2008, an unhoused man heard a woman screaming in the 900 block area of 6th Avenue in South Tucson. When he went to check it out, he saw a naked man hitting the woman in the head with a cement block. Just the visual. Yeah. So intense. Yeah. Now the witness began to shout at him and the naked man ran away. Emergency services were called and the woman was rushed to the hospital. She had a fractured skull, a broken nose, three stab wounds to the back, and multiple cuts to her face and scalp. The woman told police she was raped at knife point by the man, who had also choked her with a belt. She related that her attacker had told her that he was the son of Satan and that he'd been sent to kill her, and she described him as a Native American male. Well, that just can't be right, because everybody knows Satan is white. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm a well, he that is always there. depicted as white. <laughs> really? I don't need. I don't. I you. You can't convince me of otherwise. Uh, so just, just six days later. Um. By the way, it's amazing. This woman escaped with her life. Yeah. So shout out to yeah. this woman. But just six days later, on July 16th, the woman's body was found under an underpass at Alvernon Way and Palo Verde Road by two teenagers while they were skateboarding. The woman had been stabbed 30 times and she had been raped and strangled. There was blood smeared on the underpass and portions of the woman's internal organs had been removed. The numbers 666 were written in blood under the overpass near her body. Investigators also found a broken liquor bottle at the scene and they swabbed it for DNA. Through her belongings, which were found scattered about 20 feet away from her body, she was identified as Margie Ortiz, born on October 16, 1950. She was an unhoused person whose family lived in Mexico. She'd been cited for loitering the day before she'd been killed, so investigators spoke with a food vendor in the parking lot where that had occurred. He reported that she'd been with other unhoused people at the time, but he could not give them any other information. Police questioned the unhoused community who described her as a really nice, somewhat innocent woman, but they got no further leads. I will say, and I don't say this often, I was impressed by the work of the Tucson PD. Yeah, um, they did a good this, job. In the investigation of yeah. this case. Um, so the DNA retrieved from the lip of the liquor bottle found at the scene was matched to the DNA found on the belt used in the July 10th sexual assault of the 37-year-old woman. So police knew that both attacks were linked. However, there was no match in the national database. Hang on. My girl DNA is going to come through soon. Wait, everybody. <laughs> Police again canvassed the unhoused population, this time asking about anyone who may have talked a lot about God or Satan. But again, they got no leads. Then, on July 28th, a woman named Norma Connor was found dead in her bedroom. Norma was born on December 25th, 1955, and she was called Dean by her friends and family. Her decomposed body was found after relatives were unable to reach her and went to her apartment in the 2400 block of South Mission Road to look for her. Her body was found in an advanced state of decomposition, and there were no obvious signs of physical trauma. Although her house was in disarray, the door of her residence was locked, and there was no sign of forced entry. An autopsy failed to reveal that she'd been murdered. The case remained open as a death from unknown causes and was not linked to the previous two cases. 
So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. On August 1st, 2008, police were called to a park on the west side to investigate a report of lewd contact, a conduct. Jesus. <laughs> Ortega was arrested and charged with public sexual indecency, indecent exposure, and possession of drug paraphernalia. He pleaded guilty to one charge in that case and was required to provide a DNA sample. In September, Ortega was sentenced to three years probation on drug-related charges, and in October, he began living at a halfway house at Hope Recovery Christian Fellowship. Three months after his DNA had been collected, the Tucson Police Crime Lab matched Ortega's DNA to evidence in Margie Ortiz's murder and the earlier rape and beating of the 37-year-old Tucson woman, Ortega was arrested at his probation officers on October 24th. Mm. When questioned, Ortiz told officers that while he'd been living at the Christian halfway house for the past three weeks, God had changed him around in three weeks. (laughs) Well, (laughs) he works in mysterious ways. (laughs) He said that before he was, quote, not a really good person, unquote, and that he had practiced witchcraft and dark magic. I was uh, watching this interview with him where he was talking about how God had turned him around and stuff. And I grew up in the church, so I'm... It's always really interesting to me when people newly like discover God and religion and they talk about it kind of like how people who just start like CrossFit, like, yeah, like it's the greatest, it's the greatest thing. Or or (laughs) if they're in a cult or something. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) which CrossFit is, but lots of, (laughs) lots of, there's just so much enthusiasm around this new discovery, which, you know, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying I notice it in. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So uh, he said that at the time he thought he'd be going to hell. So he decided to just go ahead and worship Satan and that he had told Satan, quote, I'll just do your will, unquote. He also reported to the investigators that he blocked out when drinking. This was probably an attempt to get ahead of the story so he could claim that he didn't remember what had happened. However, when investigators confronted him with the sexual assault of the 37-year-old woman and the DNA evidence, and when they told Ortega that they didn't think he'd blacked out during the assault, he finally admitted to it. He also admitted that he'd attempted to murder her. Investigators then confronted him with Margie's murder. He told police that he'd been hanging out and drinking with Margie and one of her friends. He wanted some crack and Margie's friend said she she could go get them some. So he gave her money to buy it. But the friend never came back with the crack. So he became angry and attacked Margie, telling her he was doing Satan's will. He beat her, stabbed her, gutted her and quote, pulled out her insides, unquote. Mm. He then wrote the number of the beast on the underpass in her blood. He claimed he'd said, quote, this is for you, Satan, unquote, Mm. and that he could feel that Satan was telling him that he was good for doing his deed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, He also later admitted to the murder of Norma Dean Connor, which surprised investigators since they didn't even know that she had been murdered. He claimed that he'd smothered her during consensual sex. So now we're going to get into the trial. What do you got for us, Beth? Prosecutors believed Ortega met four statutory requirements for the death penalty. They alleged Ortega committed more than one homicide and the crimes were committed in an especially heinous, cruel or depraved manner. In addition, they said Ortega had other convictions for serious offenses and was also awaiting trial on unrelated charges. Guess who's going to jail tonight? (laughs) 
So according to Deputy Pima County Attorney Susan Ezer, a plea agreement was negotiated in part to spare the victim's relatives the trauma of a trial. And Ortega took it in order to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to two natural life sentences plus an extra 20 years. Ortega's formal sentencing gave an opportunity for his surviving victims to address the court, along with relatives of the deceased victims. Margie Ortiz and Norma Connor were both described as selfless women who would do anything to help anybody and who were both greatly missed. Ophelia Flores, Mar- Margie's sister, said, quote, the pain, rage and sadness and confusion we've endured the last year has been enough to last a lifetime, unquote. When Ortega's surviving victim could not bring herself to speak, a companion spoke for her, telling the judge that the woman remains scared and full of pain. She said, quote, she may not be lying in the ground, but he's killed her, unquote. That's a that's a profound um, statement. statement. Yeah. Uh, Ortega attributed the offenses to his drug and alcohol use in addition to the voice in his head, which he identified as Satan. He told the court he was sorry and he hoped that God would forgive him for his sins. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Ortega was housed at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Florence, Arizona, in the Iman Special Management Unit. Over the years, Arizona prisons have been under much scrutiny for their use of the special management units to punish prisoners and their high rates of suicides. Yeah, it's pretty deplorable. It's bad. According to an Amnesty International report, Arizona's special management units, which are intended for prisoners who pose the greatest physical threat to prison employees and the public, are instead often filled with mentally ill, nonviolent, and vulnerable offenders. Most prisoners held in SMUs have little to no human interaction. With just one or two hours out of their windowless cells each day, they must choose to either shower or spend their limited out-of-cell time in a small cage with 20-foot walls and a sliver of sky, which the ADC contends is sufficient outdoor recreation. Okay. You guys 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 do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So SMU prisoners cannot participate in work, rehabilitative or educational programs. If they protest their living conditions, guards ignore them or sometimes deliberately deny them food. According to a U.S. Bureau of Justice statistics report released in December 2012, Arizona's prison suicide rate is higher than the national average. Amnesty International's report found that at least 14 of 43 suicides recorded in Arizona prisons between October 2005 and April 2011, almost 33% occurred in SMUs, even though those units housed less than 9% of the state's total prison population. Those are terrible numbers. Yeah, abysmal. And what's interesting is um, a lot of prisons do all they can to save money um, so they can build more prisons yeah. and save and, and save make, money. But, make more money. Yeah. And, yeah, may, uh, yeah. So they're, they're saving the expense of treating people humanely so that people can line their pockets. Right. But citizens are spending a lot of money on lawsuit payouts because yeah. – of these the things, of things that are going yeah. wrong. Um, and in February of 2017, Apollo Keith Ortega, 31, was found unresponsive in his cell. He was pronounced dead at the scene. It was investigated as a homicide, uh, but we could not find the results of that investigation. Yeah, and I don't I know how say, it would be a homicide. <laughs> I don't 
know how <laughs> yeah. that happened. Yeah. Um, but now we're going to get into our takes. What are your thoughts on this one, Beth? Well, it sounds to me like Ortega had a pretty rough childhood and that yeah. he had behavioral issues due to ADHD and that his family and the schools failed him. Mm-hmm. Too often schools will treat these kids like they're just bad seeds instead of getting them help. Mm-hmm. And after an incident, they'll just call the parents to come pick them up or suspend them instead mm-hmm. of working with them. And if the parents don't know how to navigate the system, they also don't know what to do and yeah. or they don't have enough money to get them the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Students who need extra help and support in school may be eligible for an individualized education program or IEP. Yeah. My grandson's on one. Yeah. And I, I had um, we were considering um, getting our son on one, but yeah. it requires a lot of um, research. It's a on lot the of parents work. Power, yeah. And then and then the teacher also has to be um, willing to um it's a it's a it's, it's a, a lot of work. So yeah, yeah, a lot of work on all sides, teachers and parents. Right, and this this program is offered free of charge to families of kids in public schools, and outlines the goals and any support services that may be needed for a child to succeed in school. But uh, as we were just discussing, it's not automatic, and a lot of teachers hate them. So they won't even mention them to the parents. Some mm. teachers don't even believe in ADHD and they just blame Whoa. the parents for any bad behavior. You think in 2022 that's yeah. true? Yeah, it's, it's true. I, not the majority of teachers. Yeah. Um, but some my daughter came across some of these. Um, oh, and there's right. a lot she of works in the field. Yeah. And when my son was in grade school. Uh, OK, so this was like, I don't know. Uh, 25 years ago or Mm so. Um, Mm -hmm. He was diagnosed with ADHD without the hyperactivity component. So Mm -hmm. he wasn't hyper, but he still uh, had difficulty uh, paying attention in class. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about IEPs, never heard of them, didn't have any idea. Interesting. Didn't have Google you know, uh-huh. none of that stuff. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not one teacher or, you know, anybody at the school suggested it to me. Not one. Did they know about your son's diagnosis? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, wow. And when he got into high school, I was worried about him in high school. So mm-hmm. I asked at the beginning of the year, I asked for a meeting with his teachers and I talked to them about his needs. Um, you know, mainly it was having trouble concentrating in class and getting work done. Uh-huh. And uh, some of them just rolled their eyes at me. Oh, And again, not one suggested an IEP. Wow. So you have to ask for them. And they have, they're a lot of work. They have to be redone every single year. They don't make it Uh easy for you. But once you have an IEP, it's against the law for a teacher to not follow it. And so they can't just call the parents to come pick up the kid when there's a problem. They have to work with the kids. So Mm -hmm. it's worth doing if you're having a lot of problems with school. I just wanted to mention this for any uh, parents out there who have kids who who have behavioral issues. Yeah. And I know we have a lot of listeners who are teachers. Yeah. So I um, also think it would be helpful to hear from them on, you know, um, what their thoughts are on how parents can approach this subject. If, if you are so inclined yes. to bring it up in the discussion group. Yeah. Um, that'd be great. You know, we're a community. Help yeah, us out. Help, <laughs> help out your uh, fellow parents. Yeah fellow, yeah. yeah. fellow parents. So I think that, uh, you know, he had these behavioral issues and didn't get the help that he needed. He dropped mm-hmm. out of school in what ninth grade. 
Um, yeah. So he yeah. didn't. He didn't have an education. He uh, he couldn't keep a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had all of these issues, and mm-hmm. um, I think he was just a very angry young man. Yeah, and when we talk about like substance use disorder, um, it is a lot about masking trauma or um, suppressing feelings of pain. Yeah. Um, and for a, a child nine years old to be, I, that's just Drinking wild to me. and, and yeah, doing drugs. He must yeah. have been in so, so much pain. pain. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when that, you're doing that, you can't you can't learn and grow. You just can't. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And so um, this is one of those times where I have empathy for the young child but, yeah. that he was. Right. Um, and due to a lot of factors, including lack of support. Right. Here's where we here's where we are. Yeah. Um, and again, of, can we get some affordable mental health care in this oh country? Oh my God, please, yeah. please. Too many crickets. <laughs> please. <laughs> affordable, affordable, like so many things. Like I, I just feel like support in all aspects of life, mental yeah. health, general health care, ensure people have what they need, not only to survive, but thrive. Yeah. And true crime as we know it might be extinct. Yeah. We might Seriously. Not be, like we, there might there be no more Fruit Loops if all these yeah, problems are solved. Yeah, let's put us out of business. Yeah, please. That's my hope. Um, and we know there's a direct correlation between crime and struggle. Yeah. Um, and as we said, engaging in these substances, it, it, he just had it just pain. It, it couldn't have yeah. been an easy life. Right. Um, and it also is, it was interesting to me to think that a child that young would have access to substances like that right. so early makes me think that the adults around him may have also been in pain and suffering. And to cope using themselves yeah. yeah so that's that generational trauma element that i was talking about right that unfortunately continued with apollo you know i say in my bipoc um healing and mental wellness circles that i'm in um we always talk about how you know you did it to our ancestors you did it to our grandparents you did it to our parents you're not going to fucking do it to us so like this cycle of generational trauma and pain is stopping with with me you right, know what i mean like, right my goal is to not inflict those things not on my, on kids. my watch <laughs> not on oh look at you doing a little iyama impression <laughs> glory dear uh so um yeah uh, w- uh, w- i think we're much better at handling behavioral issues and neurodivergence um, issues in younger kids today. Um, but I imagine those didn't help. Um, and his, his crimes were so violent. Yeah. The pulling her guts out after he stabbed her. Yeah. Man, hurt people hurt other people. Um, I know it's not that simple, but, uh, he, he was very, very angry. He very angry. Uh, and it's just horrible what he did did as an adult. Our hearts go out to the victims, their families and their community. Yeah. This, um, but this was an interesting case to cover. So it was, thank you to our fruity who suggested. Yes. Now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right. This is an oldie but goodie. 
don't forget, y'all, be aware of your surroundings. Head on a swivel. We outside now. Yeah. And, uh, you you, 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 you got to be careful. Head on a swivel. Get off your phone, but keep your phone handy in case you need to call for help, especially if you're wandering around alone. Lock your door behind you, no matter where you are. The car, your house, the bathroom. Make it a <laughs> habit to immediately lock the door behind you. Don't be afraid to be rude or cause a scene. Um, don't forget to park in well-lit areas close to um, where you are going and as always trust your gut trust that gut all right shout out time now we're going to shout out any content by or about any people of color any marginalized othered or oppressed folks or any true crime goodies i just wanted to shout out a new album dropped by the smokes a black alternative rock band um and they just happen to be my relatives wow um and the new album is called government graffiti uh and it's available on Bandcamp, and i will put a link um in the show notes and uh also a film called Coda. It was an Academy Award nominated movie. Wow. And, uh, th- there was a lot of talk about it because the cast is mostly deaf people. Whoa. Uh, and it centers a young girl. Yes, that's right. You, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Uh, yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. Uh, it centers a young girl who is the only hearing member of her deaf family. She's navigating these two worlds. Um, who's also, And she's trying to pursue her own path and it's so so good um and i didn't know this but coda stands for child of deaf adults which i just learned i did um, not know that either hence the title but coda is also in music a passage that brings a piece to an end it's the tale um and so there is a musical element of this and it is just really really beautiful so um that ew those are my shout outs what do you got um, I wanted to shout out a documentary on Peacock mm-hmm. called Perfect World, A Deadly Game. I'm listening. It's a two-part documentary that tells the true story of a bunch of gamers who play the online game Perfect World together on a private server when Uh-oh. one of them announces that he's killing members of his family. What? Yeah. And the rest of them attempt to find out if it's true, who he actually is, <gasps> and where he lives before he kills again. Oh my God. Yeah. This is Don't Fuck With Cats too. And it, it sounds Yeah, it reminded me a lot of uh, Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I whew, I am going to tune into that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for shout outs, we've got a new album by The Smokes, a black alternative rock band on Bandcamp and wherever music is sold. Um, the movie Coda, I streamed it on Apple Plus TV. Um, use use your seven day free trial and watch it. <laughs> also, Perfect World, a deadly game. It is on Peacock. Yeah. Um, and boy, oh boy, this has been fun. Yeah. But that's it. That's next. <laughs> Where do the people find us? <laughs> our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until (laughs) next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 